This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, uh, Aaron Weinacht here with the new books in Russian and Eurasian Studies, and I'm here today with Dr. Ronald Suni, who has written a new book on Stalin uh, called The Passage to Revolution. So thanks for being here to talk about the book, Ron. I'm happy to be here. All right. Uh, could you uh, start off by filling everyone in a bit on yourself, uh, how you ended up studying Russian history, how you came to work, be working on this particular topic more specifically? I think I would say that my interest in Russian history started at the dinner table or the breakfast table. My father, uh, George Sunni, uh, was born in uh, eastern Turkey and lived in Tbilisi, Tiflis. His father was a kind of nationalist revolutionary and a composer. And so when we were growing up, my sister Linda and I, we heard these tales about the Bolshevik Revolution, about of uh, the uh, communists coming to Tbilisi in 1921, all those kinds of romantic stories. So I got really interested in this. Uh, and my grandfather had been a member of the Communist Party in the United States, I think some kind of small Armenian cell. And what it was, how it was related to the regular party, I'm not sure. He was eventually thrown out of that party for criticizing Stalin. Uh, but my father continued sort of, you know, his affection for the Soviet Union and this kind of dream that, that they would build socialism, something like that, all through the years of the Cold War. Though he carefully told me, Ron, don't ever join anything because those were difficult times and joining could lead to who knows what. So this, this sparked interest. What is this place, the Soviet Union, that he was so affectionate about? Uh, and I began to study the Soviet Union and in a kind of critical manner, but also not uh, anti-communist manner. I would say I follow my one of my mentors, Moshe Levine, that, and I, I proclaim that I'm an anti-anti-communist. <laughs> that anti-communism is a kind of fierce uh, and un, uh, un, a very unsubtle uh, way of approaching the Soviet Union, accusatory, incriminating, you know, uh, indicting. And I was trying to sort of be, uh, in a way, more understanding of what they were trying to do and also critical of what they didn't do or how they betrayed their own principles. I would say something like that. So it's been very exciting. Right? The whole journey has been exciting in Soviet historiography. 
What um, on the subject of this particular book, then, uh, you know, I, I noted there at the beginning that you've been working on this topic for a pretty long time. Uh, what what made you conclude that that, uh, you know, a book on the young Stalin uh, was really an, an important topic to write about? So uh, many years ago, when I was a graduate student and we're talking about the 1960s, I'm much older than most people think. Um, I began to write a book called The Baku Commune. It was my first book. It was my dissertation. The Baku Commune was a, the, the revolution in the oil capital, what now the capital of Azerbaijan, uh, of Baku, and where there were class and nationality clashes. And I wrote the history of that, that, that revolution. Uh, and I then became sort of embedded in the history of the South Caucasus, in the countries of Azerbaijan, Georgia, and Armenia. I am myself uh, the son of two Armenians, born in the United States. I was born in the United States. My mom was born in the United States, but both my father, who came from, as we used to say, the other side, and my mother were Armenians. And so there was a lot of that stuff in the house and interest. They wanted me to be a real American, so they didn't teach me the language Armenian, which I had to struggle with in graduate school and probably will never be totally fluent in. But you know, I worked hard at it. Uh, and and so I was stuck there in the Caucasus, and I was really having a good time. Nobody seemed that interested in, in that area. Everybody was interested in Moscow, Petersburg, that is Leningrad at the time, uh, the center, the top, the Kremlin, politics. And there I was working in uh, Armenian history, Georgian history, Azerbaijani history. Uh, after the Baku Commune, I published a book called The Making of the Georgian Nation, which was a history of how Georgia became, uh, you know, a national entity. And, and in, mainly it, it centered on the Soviet period. I wrote a book called Looking Toward Armenia, Armenia, Looking Toward Ararat, excuse me, Armenia in Modern History. So I had books on all these republics, all of which were condemned by the people in those republics. The Georgians didn't like the fact that some Armenian who was on the left was writing a history of their country. The Azerbaijanis, I was called you know, bourgeoisie falsificator, historia, historia Azerbaijana. You know, bourgeois falsifier of the uh, history of Azerbaijan that was in Soviet Azerbaijan, and in the West, I was accused of being too left or too Marxist or something like that. So you always lost these things. The Armenians even didn't like my book on Armenia because it's not nationalist. It's not doesn't celebrate Armenians. It's quite critical of. Oh, uh, uh, of many of the things that happened in that country or done by Armenians. So, you know, that was that was the background. And then I thought, how can I make this history of the Caucasus more accessible, more relevant to a non-Caucasian audience, right? Uh, and I thought, ah, I've got a gimmick. I've got a gimmick. Stalin. Stalin comes out of the Caucasus. He's a Georgian, and he becomes at one point, probably by the end of his life, the most powerful man in the world. So I think I'll start writing that book. And I started sometime in the 80s. So this book literally took, I would say, about 33 years to finish. And I started, I wrote maybe two or 300 pages. Uh, but then I realized, wait a minute, Gorbachev is here now. He's opening the archives. I better wait. And I put the book aside, wrote some other books, lots of other books, Soviet Experiment and others, uh, and then came back to it when the archives were available when the Georgians opened their archives, and I was one of the first, if not the first, 
to work in that Georgian archive when it opened uh, in the post-Soviet period. Uh, and so the book is about Stalin's youth is uh, from the time he was born in December 1878 in Gordy, in a provincial town in Georgia, up to the coming to power uh, in October 1917. So it's the first half of his life and the story of the making of a revolutionary. That's why the subtitle is uh, Passage to Revolution. Could uh, uh, you maybe give the listeners a a bit of an overview of of Stalin's early life, kind of up to the point of his, uh, maybe I shouldn't use the word conversion, but uh, conversion to, to Marxism. That's, that's something I think that, that uh, most people aren't really going to know much about. You know? So what, what would be some of the, the high points to your mind of that very early period in Stalin's life? Stalin was born uh, of a uh, um, Georgian mother and father in this little town of Gordy. Uh, it was a poor family. The father was a, carp, uh, a cobbler, a shoemaker, and uh, he did pretty well at first, but then after losing several children, I think they lost two uh, infant sons before Stalin was born. Uh, this father, Besso, became quite alcoholic and really ruined his career. So Stalin was raised by his very devout, uh, orthodox, religiously orthodox mother, uh, who was very strong uh, and uh, person and was... D- determined that Stalin would become educated and that he would become a priest in the Georgian Orthodox Church. The father was opposed to that. The father wanted him to become a carpenter. And she won out in this battle. So you have this uh, dysfunctional family, you have this uh, father who's a kind of failure, and you have Stalin, who is very ambitious, a quite smart guy, young boy, succeeds well in the church school in Gordy goes on through his mother's determined efforts to the seminary in Tiflis, in Tbilisi, and is determined to become a priest. But it's in that seminary, in uh, uh, the uh, uh, 1890s, that Stalin turns away from religion toward revolution. And one of the major reasons for that is that this seminary is a repressive, russifying institution which denigrated, actually despised, you could say, Georgian culture, Georgian language, uh, Georgians as a people. And Stalin had grown up in this Orthodox family, had been had written sort of nationalist poetry. Uh, he had certainly been romantically involved with, with uh, this country of his birth, Georgia, as it was emerging uh, and developing its own national consciousness. And so he turned uh, toward revolution and toward identification with with the Russian revolutionary movement, uh, which is and eventually Marxism. So he gave up his more nationalistic streak, which took some time and became what he would have proposed was an internationalist revolutionary that is less concerned with Georgia and more concerned with actually world revolution. Uh, and that evolution took place in that seminary. He began to go out and organize workers. Uh, he wasn't that successful at it. Uh, he had started almost immediately to clash with the leaders of Georgian social democracy, Georgian Marxist movement, Noya Jordania and others, uh, and eventually uh, was sort of marginalized within the movement. 
went off to Batumi in 1902, led a strike, which unfortunately led to violence and killing of workers. Uh, he was arrested, went to Siberia, and he was on his way to be a revolutionary, you could say a professional outlaw. I, I wanted to take a, a brief uh, brief detour here off of uh, uh, Stalin specifically, because uh, you, you had some some comments there at the beginning of your book about the relationship between biography and uh, uh, kind of getting inside people's heads, psychoanalyzing them. And I was I thought it might be interesting uh, to hear you talk for a bit on when writing a biography, when you're looking at somebody when they're young and, and so on, how do, how do historians kind of navigate the, the temptation to engage in psychohistory? What was your approach to doing that? That was actually one of the most difficult things to work out. So there was a moment, and this was some long time ago when I first started working on the book, when there was a trend in uh, Western historiography, not so much in Russia, though there were some practitioners, one of the major uh, biographers of Stalin, Robert C. Tucker, who uh, ended his career at Princeton, wrote as kind of psychobiography of Stalin, of the young Stalin. Um, and others like Arthur Mandel at Michigan and others took this approach of what they called psychohistory. And psychohistory was a kind of Freudian approach. You took your figure as if you had him uh, conveniently uh, on a couch near you and you could interrogate him. Now, what happened with psychohistory is that uh, the historian reading documents, whatever was available, and the record of Stalin's inner life is very scant indeed, <clears throat> and the, the, the uh, um, I was going to say victim, but the, the, uh, the focus, the personality that you're analyzing, uh, uh, his activities, and you tried to make sense of it from a psychoanalytical point of view. That is, what were his uh, you know, sexual orientations, um, what were his inner motives, and so forth. And what often came out in those uh, psychobiographies was a kind of pathological figure, that is. Uh, for Tucker, it was uh, Stalin's uh, being beaten by his father. Turns out, in my own investigation, it was more the mother who uh, disciplined him and beat him than the father. But in any case, there was an early psychobiography by a comrade of Stalin's, Iromashvili, Irakli, uh, uh, sorry, uh, uh, Soso Iromashvili, which had that psychological uh, point of view in Tucker continued that. So you always look for these interior motives, etc. And I thought, you know, I want to write a biography using the available evidence without reading into it any sort of deep psychological or psychoanalytical motivations that I can't document. And I do that by, by you certainly have to develop psychology, but psychology, it doesn't have to be limited to psychoanalysis or Freudianism. And I do this by developing the context, seeing this figure go through different contexts. And as I've already mentioned, Stalin, uh, the young Stalin, or uh, Yosef Jugashvili, Soso, goes through the Georgian cultural scene, the seminary, uh, orthodox religion, his mother's upbringing, the revolutionary movement, the disenchantment with religion, the acceptance and, and uh, immersion into Marxism, 
the underground revolutionary movement, all of the violence that the periphery of an empire experiences, and Georgia is at the edge of the Russian empire in 1905, 1906, 1907, the pain and suffering of exile. He's uh, at the end of the, the czarist period from 1913 until the revolution in 1917. Stalin is in Eastern Siberian exile in the most uh, abysmal, severe uh, climate you can imagine living there uh, uh, before the revolution. So these are experiences. These are contexts. And you examine also and take Marxism seriously. What is this creed? What is this idea that they have? What are, what are their ideals? What are their motivations? And all of those things that influence the way you create uh, a psychology and, and link that to his actions to find out the full personality of this individual. It's a complex and difficult task. It's a, I, I think I use the metaphor of taking pieces that appear to you and their fragments and building a kind of legible mosaic. So waiting for the picture to emerge. And I think I did accomplish that uh, in the in the biography, but I can tell you it took a long time. Yeah, I was I, I was really interested in that just because it, at the beginning of the book, as you were talking about uh, psychohistory and so on, uh, you know, I, I saw what you were after there. But then I realized over the course of the book that actually a pretty complex, you know, psychological picture of the guy. Uh, was was emerging. So, you know, my, you know, my sense of it after after reading the book was that uh, you, you know, uh, succeeded at, uh, at bringing that out without, uh, you know, being overly reductionist, uh, starting from a, you know, like a Freudian theoretical point of view, like you said. You know, Aaron, I would add this to that, that is at the end, when I finally put the pieces together without trying to impose an a priori picture on this, right? Uh, so I, in some ways I take a postmodern view, taking all these these little pieces and uh, and putting them together in what's often called bricolage until a picture emerges. Uh, as I saw the pattern by the end, after lots of years of work, the overall arc seemed to be one that I now characterize in Stalin's development as an erosion of empathy. So empathy, I'm very interested in emotions in history. Empathy is an extraordinarily important emotion. It's basically your ability to feel the pain, suffering, or even happiness, I guess, of other people, of being able to experience uh, and not only sympathize, but empathize with other people. And there's evidence that Stalin, like normal people, you know, not, not psychopaths or sociopaths, uh, had some of this at the beginning. But there's a pattern of the erosion, of the erasure of this, this uh, empathy over time as he experiences the trials and the pains uh, of living in the underground, in exile, and mostly experiencing the violence of the regime in Transcaucasia, and then himself engaging as a kind of terrorist in 1905-67 in, in the revolution. And by the time you get to the revolution itself, that empathy has been replaced by what I would call a kind of Machiavellianism, a kind of strategic rationality. Uh, what works? What's best for us? What's best for the movement? What's best for me? And there's this kind of psychological identification of him as a personality with his party, 
and the party with history and the history uh, and the party and himself with what's good for Russia and eventually the Soviet Union. So uh, that's complex maybe, but I think the arc is one of a figure who becomes less, less empathetic and he's not yet the mass killer that he will be in the 1930s, uh, but that figure is there already. And under other circumstances, he's going to evolve into what we know to be the tyrannical, despotic Stalin of the 1930s. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You know, I, I wasn't going to ask you this until the end, but actually I, I think now is a good time to bring this up. So in the, in the historiography section at the end of the book, you were talking about uh, Kotkin's big biography of, of Stalin, which actually I haven't read. I was He's done with it, isn't he? No, he has a third volume at least, and maybe a fourth volume. Right, to I was going to wait to read it until after you know, he was done with the whole thing. Um, but what in that in that section there, you you mentioned that that Kotkin says that the fundamental fact, I think, was the way you put it about about Stalin was his uh, his Marxism. So that erosion of empathy, you know, if you were asked what was the fundamental fact about about Stalin. Um, is that, is that what you, how you would answer that, that, that erosion of empathy, uh, point you made, or would you say something different? I would say that's one big thing. That's the, that's the emotional side, but people don't only operate by emotions. They also have uh, a more rational or cognitive side as well. And I, what I, what I try to emphasize is you've got to take his ideas, his writings, his journalism, he was a journalist, basically, before the revolution. He wrote uh, dozens and dozens of articles and pamphlets and the, uh, wrote a big pamphlet that, that Lenin praised uh, about the national question about what to do with the non-Russian peoples. So you have to take ideas and Marxism seriously and not caricaturize, ca- uh, um, not caricature uh, Marxism, but show what it really is. And, and uh, since I myself am very uh, influenced by by Marx in a kind of loose way, but but effectively. Uh, I've written an essay, which I once gave as the president of the uh, then AAASR Slavic Association, in which I said, what's left of Marx? Meaning, uh, what remains of Marx? What's still worth using? And what's to the left of Marx? You know, that is, how do we achieve the democratic and humanistic and less... uh, egalitarian goals of Marxism in an age when uh, this is, seems less and less uh, likely. So I take these things seriously. And I just read a, uh, one of the first reviews of the, of the Stalin book, and I, I liked, I'm going to read you two lines, and then I'll, I'll try to answer your question. So here's what this guy writes. He says the book is interesting, and it's a big book and all of that, and he goes through it, and then he says, Sunni, perhaps because of his own socialist leanings, takes at face value the humanistic goals proclaimed by the Marxist revolutionaries. But there was little humanistic about the goals of Lenin and Stalin, 
as later developments proved. For the author, the Marxist socialist ideal never dies. In the book's conclusion, Sunni laments that Stalin's humane sensibilities, I'm quoting now from me, gave way to hard strategic choices, unquote. Quote, empathy was replaced by instrumental cruelty, unquote. Once in power, the reviewer writes, Sunni writes, quote, the imperatives of the new conditions in which Bolsheviks found themselves forced them to make unanticipated choices, unquote. And then he fi- finishes the review with this line. In an interview in 2014, Sunni, like Vladimir Putin, described the fall of the Soviet Union as a catastrophe. <laughs> now, you can see what's going on here. That is, uh, in, in America, we have a political, discursive, hege- hegemonic a way of seeing things. And this is a kind of, you could call it liberal conservative, if you like, uh, a narrow political spectrum which sees the world uh, in a certain way. And America is at the top of that historical evolution. And so if someone comes with socialist ideas or Marxist leanings, as you want to call it, they used to call them Marxist blinders, like you were a horse and you had these things that could only let you see things in one way, then then it, it confronts, it contradicts, it's jarring to this liberal uh, conservative consensus, right? And it's therefore, in a way, illegitimate. And it can be equated with the views of Vladimir Putin, right? Or uh, some apologist of Russia. So if you write from a point of view that is less anti-communist, uh, less sort of embedded in this liberal conservative consensus, uh, and wants to find out from a more sympathetic or empathetic, if you like, point of view, what were these guys up to? What did they actually think? Why did they dedicate their lives? Uh, I say that uh, then you have to you have to give weight to their the, these Marxist ideas and the what I would say genuinely humanistic egalitarian uh, things that were in that Marxism. Now Marxism is also a theory of war. It's a theory of class war, and it believes in politics being in a way a kind of warfare. I don't subscribe to that. I take a much more democratic view of politics. That is, politics should be about compromise, negotiation, give and take, right? But there were people like Lenin who believed, no, no, politics is like war, and Stalin would be certainly one of those people. And then what you have to do is defeat and maybe destroy your enemy and give them nothing, right? That's not democratic politics. That's revolutionary politics. And that is what the Bolsheviks believed, right? So you can read that out of Marxism, it's not embedded in Marxism. It's not all of Marxism. Marxism is like, you know, this big umbrella under which a lot of people live and think different things. And you get two Marxists in a, in a room, you have three political parties, right? So it's not, it's not so easy to deduce from Marx's writing or Lenin's writing what, what views you might have. So uh, I'm trying to take that much more, much more sympathetically. And, and I, I do a rereading of the history of Russian social democracy and of the Marxist movement to show what Lenin was about. And what I discovered is, at least in their writings, and and they forcefully pushed this. Now, you could say they're completely deceptive. They never intended this. Well, prove that, right? Only later, under different conditions, after the revolution, uh, do do they move in a different direction. But before the revolution, the Russian Social Democratic Party, both 
wings of it, both factions, Mensheviks and Bolsheviks, are largely about democracy. They're about a what they called bourgeois democratic revolution, a revolution that would overthrow czarism, overthrow autocracy, and create a liberal democratic society, which would then allow capitalism to develop, a proletariat, a working class to develop, in free conditions that eventually would allow that working class to become conscious and make the second revolution the socialist revolution, right? Now, Lenin conflated those revolutions once in 1905 for a while, and then more decisively in 1917. And so they move in a different track later. But I was trying in this book to recapture uh, their original vision, their original thinking in those pre-revolutionary years. So I I think that uh, that leads us to another kind of key point of the book as I read it, uh, since you brought up the, uh, you know, the different wings of the party, uh, that as I, as I read it, you were, you were suggesting that, um, really one of the key formative experiences Stalin underwent was that deep, deep factionalism and division inside the party. And, you know, I thought you did a pretty good, uh, uh, you know, job of persuading the audience of how how pivotal that was for how Stalin operated. Is that is that something you could you could speak to then? How does Stalin fit inside the overall you know internal factions of the of the party? In general, Stalin was a very good Leninist. He took his cues from Lenin, and he tried to stay close to Lenin. Now there were moments of disagreement in the post nineteen oh five period. Lenin got all deeply uh, involved in uh, uh, philosophical disputes about the nature of materialism, the ontology of the world, how we learn things, epistemology, etc., materialism and imperial criticism. He wrote a book and so forth. And Stalin thought this was a waste of time, uh, that the, the people abroad, Lenin and others, were, were involved in these things which were actually dividing the party. And the interesting thing is, Stalin, much more than Lenin, was a unifier. He wanted the party to stay together. He was afraid of these destructive factionalisms that were pulling the party apart. And he criticized Lenin and said these philosophical disputes are a tempest in a teacup. He didn't like that at all. Uh, so, so there were those uh, small disputes. But in general, in general, he stayed close to Lenin. Lenin was the one person older than he that he really respected. He followed him. And Lenin, of course, promoted Stalin and made his career, brought him into the Central Committee, asked him in uh, uh, 1912-13 to write this pamphlet uh, about the national question that made his his fame within the party. And then uh, after the revolution, after they took power, uh, Stalin stayed close to Lenin until almost the end of Lenin's life. They had a huge dispute over the national question, over the treatment of Georgia. This is what Moshe Levine calls Lenin's last struggle. And you remember, perhaps, uh, that at the end, Lenin said in his so-called testament that Stalin should be removed from his position as general secretary of the party. He's accumulated too much power, uh, and he's not very comradely because he had insulted Lenin's wife, uh, Krupskaya. Uh, and the Politburo, the head of the, the, the highest uh, committee in the party, debated this thing, this 
Testament of Lenin. And they all around the table decided to keep Stalin in that position and not to get rid of him. And everyone in that room, except Stalin, who in fact agreed to keep Stalin in a position of power, uh, was a later, if they lived until the 30s, was eliminated by Stalin uh, in the decade ahead. The last one being Trotsky, who was murdered by Stalin's agent in Mexico in 1940 with a... a uh, it was an ice pick, wasn't it? Ice pick in the back of his head, yeah. The, uh, since you brought up the, the specific issue of nationalism, uh, it might be useful to have you comment here on um, what's how does Stalin kind of become the party guru on on nationalism and how how does that how do, or, or on the nationalities and how does that how do those discussions play out inside the context of the broader splits within the party over those kinds of issues? This book, like a lot of my work, is framed in the larger picture of empires and nations. Uh, A couple years ago, my wonderful colleague, Valerie Kivelson and I wrote and published a book with Oxford University Press called Russia's Empires. And in that book, we developed the idea that empire as a frame is an extraordinarily important way to look at the history of Russia and of the Soviet Union. And in this book, I apply that frame that we developed in that earlier book to the story of Stalin as well. So Stalin, and I mentioned this earlier, was born at the periphery of the empire. Imperial politics, imperial violence, colonialism uh, is all part of his uh, life experience. So this Georgian uh, young man comes into the party rises uh, to the highest levels, the Central Committee, under Lenin's guidance, and in 1913, with Lenin urging him on, publishes this book called Marxism and the National Question. And that book has a theory of the nation. It's a rather, I would say, reductionist and essentialist theory of the nation, but it's a powerful one. I mean, who cared in 1913 what this odd Georgian would have thought? except that later this odd Georgian is going to become the ruler of the Soviet empire and his views are going to prevail. So the book becomes retrospectively unbelievably important. And basically the book was written to uh, attack more nationalist thinking, even within the Marxist circles, what was called Austro-Marxism. And uh, and it, it, it pushed a point of view that was very conducive to what Lenin was developing as his central theory of nationalism. So it goes something like this. Lenin and Stalin, there are slight disagreements, but not much. Basically, Lenin and Stalin believed, one, that nations are creations of history. So that's good Marxism. They are not, you know, products of nature. They're products of human beings and of social systems. Secondly, the modern nation is the, is the creation of the capitalist stage of history. New markets and railroads and people coming into cities, the nation uh, is made. So nations are real 
substantial things in, in the theory of Lenin and Stalin. But they are also historical creations that have a beginning, middle, and end. And eventually, these bourgeois capitalist nations will develop as we move into socialism and communism. This is their theory. And will eventually dissolve. That doesn't mean that all culture and language and so forth will dissolve. But the nation as a central identification of people will be far, far, far less important. They eventually will evaporate. And we'll have an internationalist community uh, of, uh, of people, individuals uh, of various uh, ethnicities and so forth that will exist in peace and harmony. Remember, Marxism has a kind of utopian side to it that we're going to get rid of class struggle and we're going to get rid of national strife and we're going to get rid of imperialism and we're going to live more or less in harmony. We'll get rid of war as well. Would that it all worked out that way. It didn't seem to work out that way. Anyway, so that was the theory. And embedded in this theory was the idea that in the current moment, with nations being around and powerful, as ways of identity with that people accept and fight and die for, every nation should be given the right to self-determination, the, na- the right to national self-determination to the point, if they desire, separation from Russia. Now, that's an extreme point of view. He was, and Lenin pushed this very, very determinedly, uh, and he fought against people like Rosa Luxemburg and Nikolai Bukharin and, and uh, others, who in fact argued that we should not give any anything to nationalism. And Stalin supported that point of view. And out of this theory, and out of the right of na- na- nations to self-determination, several different things happened. One, some parts of the old Russian empire actually became independent. Poland, Finland, the Baltic countries, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia. And others, through the conquest and, and, and fighting of the civil war, were reintegrated uh, uh, with much violence into the new Soviet Union. But that new Soviet Union was not a unitary state. It was not simply Russia built large, at least in its original formulation. It was, in fact, a federation of national territorial uh, uh, republics, which were defined by their ethnicity. So you had an Armenian Soviet Socialist Republic, a a Georgian, a Ukrainian, a Belarusian, and so forth. And eventually you had 16 of them, then 15 at the end. Okay, So the theory there uh, of national self-determination and developing cultures and federation, Lenin and Stalin didn't like federation uh, very much until until, uh, late in the uh, the period of World War I and during the revolution. Uh, But ultimately they pushed for this federation. And that was the nature of the Soviet empire. It was a kind of, I would call it pseudo-federalism. Val and I use that term. Uh, and that was a new kind of imperial structure. So uh, something that stood out to me quite a bit uh, as, I was, as I was reading the book is, uh, and I, the nationalism point I, th- I think brings this out, is that really throughout the whole book, whether it's his writings on nationalism or anything else, um, he really kind of seems to have this unshakable assuredness of his own, the, the correctness or righteousness of his, of his own point of view, um, whatever that, 
that may be at any given time. And uh, I don't know. I was I was wondering if that's if that's something you could comment on. How you know, as you've been reading all the sources on on the the young Stalin, how does he kind of come to have that general attitude, whether it's on nationalism or on anything else? Yeah, that's a good question. Now, you are absolutely right, Aaron. That that this fellow was incredibly confident, right? And and confidence can often lead to arrogance. Uh, he thought he was right, and he thought that he could best his elders. Uh, he tended to be maybe this was an influence of of his mother. Maybe it was the influence of the seminaries. He was he 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 thought dogmatically, and once he had a point of view. Uh, he held tight to it. Um, that confidence may have come, and I don't want to be here too Freudian, but as a child, he was uh, relatively strong. He was apparently a good wrestler. He didn't always play fair in the the wrestling with his pals on the streets of Gordy, but uh, he often won and was brave, physically brave. Uh, maybe it was that. Often athletes have that kind of self-assurance, you know, especially wrestlers, you would think, because it's a one-on-one competition. So that, even though he had, by the way, a withered left arm, uh, because he, he had been run over by a carriage, um, he had that bad accident, and he was sensitive to that, but still he had that physical endurance and physical strength. And then the confidence his mother gave him. His mother had this unreserved love for him and uh, pushed him against the father, made sure he got education. That also would be a source of you know, this un unlimited love of a parent could certainly create that confidence, uh, ambition, and maybe even arrogance. And then finally, even so, I would add his success. He did well at school. He was clearly when he wanted to, and when he applied himself, he was at the head of his class. So uh, he these, these kinds of things, uh, in fact, uh, gave him this confidence quite early in life to not only opposed the elders within the party or in the seminary to, you know, stake out his own path, but also to think we can, we underprivileged, poor, peripheral people can organize ourselves and actually achieve what seems to be impossible, the overthrow of czarism, of autocracy, and the creation of a new world, namely international socialism. So something that kind of uh, on a related subject here that has stood out to me is it seemed to me like whenever Stalin was with people who were intellectuals, or he perceived them that way anyway, he kind of casts himself as the one guy in the room who really understands the proletariat. But then when he's with people who he thinks are the proletariat, he kind of casts himself as the intellectual in the room. Is that... Is that that was the impression I got from reading your book, and I, I wanted to see if that's if that's what you meant to say. Aaron, I wish you had pointed that out to me while I was still writing the book, because that's a very shrewd insight. I I think you may have a point there. What I do argue, and I follow the lead here of a wonderful historian who deeply studies Stalin, Eric van Rey, from the Netherlands, uh, and Eric has shown that that uh, Stalin in his self-presentation, his own uh, self-characterization, and indeed, in some ways, reflecting the real upbringing he had, was a kind of proletarian intellectual. 
So he could affect either of these stances, you see. Um, he could be the tough guy. He would dress a certain way with a worker's cap and maybe a, a dirty shirt or something like that and present himself as a man of the people. Uh, at the same time, uh, he did try to uh, develop some theoretical uh, acumen, though usually it was quite derivative and usually it was just a reprise of what Marx or Lenin had said. So he, he, he fell between and adopted both attitudes of this more popular proletarian figure, as well as that of an intelligent, a dedicated uh, activist, revolutionary intellectual. Yeah, I, was, I was just curious what you had to say about that, because it really struck me as kind of in his own head, he's almost charting his own course all the time, even in terms of how he relates to people in the room and, you know, various, you know, party meetings, big and small over time. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. Um, you know, one of the big sources, which regrettably other biographers have not used, Tucker and Kotkin and many others, they just didn't pay attention to it, was all of these writings he did before the revolution. He was, as I said, a, a journalist writing in Georgian newspapers, later in Russian newspapers, um, and there's a lot of material. He wrote a big book on anarchism or socialism, and then the nationalism book. Um, even someone like Simon uh, Montefiore uh, doesn't take seriously any of the things he talked about in terms of the national question. Uh, so he, he did play a role. Now, he wasn't a major, major figure until quite late in the Tsarist period. And then he really emerges as an important Bolshevik. Okay, an uh, important figure in a small party at first in February, March 1917. But by the end, by September, October uh, 1917, he's at the very center of events. And in October, end of October, beginning of November, he's a member of the government of the largest country in the world. So, you know, this is a spectacular rise. Uh, and so one has to take him even though he's been called a gray blur or the man who missed the revolution or whatever, uh, as a serious actor, you know, who uh, was not to be peripheralized. We, we often uh, are influenced by the biography, really interesting and fun biography by, by Trotsky that he never completed because he was murdered while he was still writing that biography. Uh, and, and Trotsky sort of dismisses Stalin, not interesting, because Stalin was uh, uh, not the kind of sophisticated theorist or intellectual uh, that Trotsky or Lenin was. Uh, but he knew how to speak to the people. He knew he had that somewhat populist streak where he could come down and, and make clear, complex ideas. He did that well, and he was praised by Lenin and others for doing this. So after Lenin died, uh, it's Stalin who puts together these lectures called Questions of Leninism, uh, and push it, uh, which becomes a book, a kind of textbook, in which, and which strategically, tactically brings Stalin into uh, identification with Lenin, right? Uh, that's a very important move that he makes, uh, because this book is, is, is a book that, that reaches ordinary people. Okay, so he didn't uh, understand maybe the intricacies and complexities of uh, imperial criticism and materialism and the philosoph philosophical things that bothered 
a man like Alexander Bogdanov or Lenin himself. But Stalin knew how, and after all, ultimately he's a politician. He knew how to speak to the people. I think we we got time for one more kind of big uh, question here, and I think this is a something of a shift, but it, it's it's at the same time something that really stood out to me in the book. So you got this whole group of people who are, uh, you know, supremely dedicated uh, to the overthrow of the czarist regime, and uh, okay, you know, I don't want to live in in post uh, you know eighteen eighty one uh, czarist uh, Russia either. Uh, but something that stood out to me was how, on the one hand, how the, the secret police were so good at infiltrating, uh, you know, underground organizations. I mean, the, the case, uh, was it Malinovsky? Uh, yeah. you know, that, that was, a, maybe you should talk about that. That was a spectacular case, but what, what really I, I found myself scratching my head about was on the one hand, how, how the regime was so good at finding people and sending them off to exile, and yet was so spectacularly awful at keeping them there. Uh, <laughs> that, uh, that really stood out to me as a theme that I hadn't really thought about until I read your book. Was was uh, There seems to be this perpetual parade of back and forth to Siberia, and it really doesn't seem to have been all that difficult to escape. Do uh, you have any insight into, into that dynamic? Recently, I wrote a lecture for my friend Val. For, she's teaching a course on Siberia, uh, uh, on the Gulag. And so I did some reading also backwards into the exile system uh, of the Tsarist period. And, uh, you know, uh, famously, uh, historians have shown, historians of your period, Aaron, of the Tsarist period, have shown that Russia was a huge country that was... Uh, very undergoverned. It may have been heavily policed when the police were around, and it had uh, this uh, system of uh, hard labor, katurga, uh, and exile, sulka, but it was such a huge territory that, in fact, people, Trotsky, uh, Stalin, several times escaped and came back uh, to Russia to, to play politics. Lenin was once exiled. He didn't escape. He finished his term or uh, and then went to Europe and stayed safely in, in the West. So, um, you know, there are many ways you can look at the Zara system. Um, certainly, it was a system of contradictions. It was a system in which the autocracy, in its attempt to maintain the power of a single person and refuse to allow political participation of any except the, the highest nobles and officials, uh, in frustrating then, uh, the civil society that was developing willy-nilly underneath, uh, that system uh, was, I, I, would, I don't want to say doomed, but was full of cracks and f- uh, f- uh, fractures that ultimately the Bolsheviks, the Mensheviks, the socialist revolutionaries, and others, liberals, were able to exploit to uh, shake the regime in 1905, force it to develop, uh, to uh, to issue some kind of constitution, and eventually to overthrow it in the course of the war in 1917. Um, it's a funny system. Uh, it used police spies like uh, Malinovsky, who was even a member of the Central Committee of the Bolshevik faction, right up next to Stalin. 
He was a friend of Stalin's. Uh, Stalin wrote letters to him from exile in Siberia asking for help <laughs> while this guy, while he was in fact working for the secret police. And then when the accusations were made and became clear that indeed he was, uh, he quit uh, his position in the Duma. He was a Duma deputy under the Bolshevik faction and fled to Europe. And still Lenin had a hard time believing that he had um, was in fact a police agent. It was just too hard for Lenin to, to realize. Ultimately, in 1918, Malinovsky decided to come back and confessed all that he had done, and the archives were open, and they could see that he had been a police agent. He came back to plead his case, and of course, he was tried and shot as a as a traitor. So it's an incredibly dramatic story. <laughs> I, I just found myself wondering, as you know, escape after escape after escape from exile, that. If the if the Tsarist regime was as bad as the people trying to overthrow it said it was, wouldn't they have expected that they would just be shot rather than exiled? I mean, I don't know. I it just it really stood out to me how the the kind of the the, the dissonance between the the rounding up and sending people into exile versus the incredible ease with which people came back and took right up with their old haunts and habits and uh, political programs and so on. One of the points that Daniel Beer in an excellent book, uh, The House of the Dead, says, and this is a book I'm about... i to read that book. It's a really good book. Uh, and one of the points he makes in his articles and in the book uh, is that in some ways, exile was a sign of the Tsar's mercy. In other words, instead of the gallows instead of being executed, you were sent into exile and presumably, like Sonia in the Brothers Karamazov or whatever, you could be redeemed. You could be rehabilitated. Remember, prisons are about a lot of different things, you know, isolating people from society, punishing them, and also penitents, you know, penitentiaries, right? Uh, rehabilitation. And uh, the exile system had all of these things, as cruel as it was, uh, the gulag, of course, is far worse, and it's you know, ten or hundreds of times more numerous and 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 so forth than than the Zara system. Uh, it's a much more modern and and a system. Though I wouldn't say it's that much that very efficient. Uh, it's a system of slave labor, which ultimately would cost the Soviet Union not not really contribute very much. But uh, you know the the the. Uh, Exile system had various aspects to it. And Stalin, you know, out there in Siberia from 1913 to 1917, he, in his own words and the words of people in his family, sort of thrived. He went fishing. He went hunting. Uh, he uh, wrote things, much of it which were lost, but uh, he engaged in correspondence with Lenin and Krupskaya and others, uh, even Malinovsky. So, you know, he didn't seem to suffer as much, even though the conditions were terrible and he was often hungry and cold and sick. Uh, he, he also found it rather bracing out there in Siberia. And he kind of liked the local people uh, who were so hardy and vigorous. Uh, and he tells stories, even funny stories about them. Hmm. Well, I, maybe a good play, way to wrap up here uh, might be to... Uh... Uh, just with an observation, uh, 
that was when I got done with the book, I remember I kind of leaning back in my chair in my office and I remember thinking, okay, so based on this book, I can totally see how the young Stalin becomes the guy who orchestrates the purges in the thirties. Like this, this person seems like the same person to me. I, this, this makes total sense to me. Is that, is that kind of where, uh, where you landed uh, on a question like that? Or would you put it somewhat differently than that? If you got that impression, then I succeeded. That is what I would want to do. I didn't want to read the despotic, tyrannical killer Stalin of the 30s back into the earlier part. But I wanted to show how over these changes and through these uh, uh, peregrinations, these movements, these developments, he becomes something that was capable uh, 10 years later, so or 20 years later, to become this, this rather brutal figure that we know as the mature Stalin. So thank you, Aaron, for that. I consider that a kind of compliment. And thank you for reading the book. It's a big book. Uh, it's a good book to keep lifting up. It'll build up your yeah. upper arms. <laughs> yeah. Yes, it will. So, I, I noticed <laughs> when the book arrived in the mail, I thought, wow, this box weighs a lot. Yeah. <laughs> So, but it's worth reading. I think it's written well. I, I mean, I, I don't want to brag, uh, but I, I think I was listening to the. By the way, there's an audio version of it. If you don't want to carry the big oh. heavy book around, you can listen to it by an incredible reader. Uh, and uh, he, I was listening to it this morning, and thought, boy, this really sounds good. He makes me sound better than I thought it was. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for uh, talking to me about the book, Ron. Thank you for asking. It was great. You bet. Bye now.